Look, who got black top shirt? Hey now. friends and enemies. It's episode three of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan here with Ed and producer Jeremy as always. And today we've got a big game trophy trophy in our sights. And 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 you know us. We we don't miss. We don't miss. So I'm I'm putting on my my creepy Eric Garland mask. I'm looking directly into the camera and strap in buckos. It's time for some Uber theory. <laughs> <laughs> Because so this episode we're 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 go, we're going after Uber. We're devoting the whole thing to Uber deep dive. Um, obviously, there's a lot going on with with Uber in California with uh, AB5. Um, their labor practices are getting a lot of attention right now, and rightfully so. Uh, the the way in which they're just completely built on exploitation um, is getting a lot of attention right now. But there's there's so much more to talk about right there's so much more going on with uber so obviously we're going to get in we're going to set up what's going on with california with ab5 with the legal case um but we also we want to dive real deep into the finances what is what is the economics of uber what's the business model of uber um and how is it also totally built on this very deceptive um, very bogus kind of whole foundation, right? It's not just that the labor practices are bad, it's that the like foundational financial practices are really bad. Um, and, and you know, Uber is Ed's bet noir more so than almost anything else or for anybody else. So I'll, I'll throw it over to you, Ed. Tell, give us a little lowdown of what's going on right now. So I think, you know, right now it's, you know, we're coming up on uh, Uber Day, which is August 20th, you know, and that is the day in which um, Uber is going to be forced to reclassify its drivers as employees. And, you know, the reason why, uh, you know, Uber Day is going to be on the 20th, August 20th, is mainly because, um, you know, they've been contesting in court a decision called, um, or, 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 
they've been contesting in court a law, you know, AB5, uh, Assembly Bill 5, and the bill codifies a Supreme Court decision that was made back in 2018 um, that says, you know, look, if uh, a worker uh, fails this ABC test, you know, a three-pronged test that we've now established as law, uh, then they're an employee, not an independent contractor. And, you know, the ABC test, it's pretty simple. A, you know, the worker has to be free from control and direction of the entity that's hiring them um, in connection with performance of their work, which uh, so under the contract. And in fact, they have to be able to really seriously claim independence, you know, either in the way that they charge prices, either in the way that they choose who their clients are, either in the way in which they're able to choose what the structure of their business is, right? Um, B, you know, they perform work that is outside the usual course of the hiring entity's business. So, you know, if they do a job that is core to a company's uh, business, um, they would fail that test, right? Because if a company is bringing you on to do something it needs, to do to be able to survive as a business, you're you're almost certainly going to be treated as an employee, right? And then see right, this is um, it, so much uh, mm-hmm. independent contractor stuff is around like um, oh we we we've got a big job and we need some extra hands, so let's hire a designer for this, or or even things like janitorial work, right? Because it's like quote unquote outside the core competency of the business, mm-hmm. right? You know, like. If, like, it makes sense, if uh, an independent contractor should be, in reality, someone who they're not, the job that you really need to be done, you're hiring someone for, and you're bringing them on because they have an increased amount of responsibility to your company, and you that you expect of them to do the work, right? So you're also providing them with benefits and with protections, right? And they're also getting access to high level of pay and more uh, promises on your end, right? But mm-hmm. it, to, to misclassify is to then tell someone who's doing work that you need to survive that they actually are not doing it and that you're just offering them like an opportunity, like it's a fucking uh, pyramid scheme. You know, like your, your vector trying to sell knives to, <laughs> you know, to everybody on your, uh, your contact list or something like that. And I think uh, C then comes in and it's like, you know, look, is the worker involved in something that is really an independent trade or occupation or business and is that the same nature of the work that the company uh is asking for you know without this company would that person be doing the same thing right Mm. and you know the i think when you look at a b and c uber fails uber and lyft you know really every single ride hailing company fails this um and honestly a lot of the companies in the gig economy right because one you know are workers free from control and direction? No. The algorithms manage these workers more tightly and more directly, more granularly uh, than human bosses could ever hope to, right? Um, they, the algorithms oh, yeah. know... Mm-hmm. Like these algorithms are, are just like they're, they're overseers, I mean, in a really yeah. serious way, right? Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I mean, like, you know, we got this ABC test and Uber Lyft are just failing with flying collars. Like there's, there's not even a remotely serious argument they could pose um, that they don't fabulously fail every one of, uh, every aspect of this test. Right. You know, and in, you know, in the months leading up to, you know, AB5 was passed as law and it took effect in uh, January 5th and then Uber took it to law and has also launched a coalition campaign with Lyft. 
DoorDash, Postmates, and Instacart to try to like make a ballot measure called Proposition 22 that you know introduces an exemption for these companies, right? So they've done all that, but in the reality, like right, also, and they're, and they're is- dumping just real quick, they're dumping 110 million dollars as this coalition into this campaign, right? Which really tells you all you need to know. I mean, Uber alone is dumping 30 million dollars. Lyft is dumping 30 million. Um, like you know, this tells you everything you need to know is that that's what they would that. This is so important to the the sustainability or the the survivability of their business that rather than you know using that thirty million to uh, in, increase wages or benefits you know no it's it's about dumping mm-hmm. it into legal cost that's what's the right. most uh, you know that's the smartest investment from their perspective right into lobbying right and you know the lobbying you know I think it makes sense on some level that Uber and Lyft and DoorDash and all of them would make that calculation because look, you know, for the past decade, that has been exactly what has worked. You know, you do a bait and switch. You promise to help workers with a new regulation that circumvents the other regulation or you ignore the regulation that propose that's being proposed. You mobilize your, your users and your drivers against it while using rhetoric that you're going to, you know, adopt something new that's going to be even better bargain. And then you just fuck everybody over. You know, Proposition 22 offers on paper $15.60, right? But, you know, when you really sit down and look at the expenses that drivers have to go through and also at the way that the money is allocated, right? Drivers are not paid for the time that they're spent being idle. And Uber as a platform to minimize the wait times for customers has hired way more drivers than it needs to. Right. So in reality, you're going to be spending a majority of your time or a significant portion of your time sitting in the car, driving back and forth between trips or driving around for trips. And in reality, you get closer to something like five dollars and sixty four cents an hour, you know, as reported by or in a study by UC Berkeley Center. So yeah, and is, this, is that even taking into account all of the other costs of like wear and tear on a vehicle, mm-hmm. uh, petrol cost or fuel cost, right? Like, uh, you know, there, there's so many other costs. So that five, you know, 564 an hour starts looking more and more like, uh, you know, well, you got to take off 50 cents an hour for the fuel cost. You got to take off, you know, 20 cents an hour for the wear and tear. You got, you know, blah, 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 blah. And soon that 564 starts to dwindling even more right you know so it's like what so on its surface level right the threat of uh, uber and lyft leaving needs to be understood as uh, uber and lyft saying look if you do not accept our proposal to pay to have the right to pay workers a subminimum wage then we are going to leave the state um rob those drivers of their income and also, by the way, we're robbing them of their income because we hired, overhired them on false promises that we got fined for about income that they would earn, about freedom for the job. You know, the, the, like these companies have been fined by the SEC for lying about what they would offer drivers in the first place, you know? So oh, all of it's that not together. Even like, it's not even little white lies, right? Like, yeah. like oh, you're, 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 you're going to make $8 an hour when in reality it's $5 an hour, right? No, they're talking about... The the marketing copy is 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 it's a fucking fantasy. They're talking you're they were, gonna make ninety thousand dollars a year yes, driving you know, for Uber. Is, Fuck you. <laughs> in New in New York City, in New York City, they were telling drivers that they were going to make ninety thousand dollars an hour. 
I worked as an organizer. Not an hour a year. I would, I would oh, love yeah, to sorry. make 90000 an <laughs> hour. That's some yeah. Bezos money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's some Dara year, money right, right there. <laughs> That's how much Dara makes, actually, right? So, you know, I worked as an organizer in, in New York City, all right? I can tell you with, with, with 100% confidence. I talked to, I would say, about uh, on days when I was out in the field in parking lots, on the street, at rest stops, like talking to as many drivers as possible. We talked to maybe 150 a day, right? You know, in short convos, and then maybe like 40 to 50 in longer convos. I met in the entire, like, you know, year, year and a half I was doing this, uh, maybe five drivers who made anything more anything close to that really right and the rest of them you have drivers who are sleeping in the cars you have drivers who are pissing in bottles in the cars you have drivers who are deciding to uh spend double shifts working and then coming home to their family when their family is asleep sleeping and then leaving in the morning all of this slipping into cycles and cycles of debt uh cycles of harm and injury to their bodies because they're not able to afford health care and they're doing a job that fucks up their posture fucks up their stress fucks up their blood pressure, fucks up their sleep cycle, fucks up like, you know, over time, their ability to actually rest and relax and, and, and respond well to really the, the, the constant precarity and being on the edge of, of a job that is not a job. It's, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it really it's called cannot a job be... because we don't have to work for it, right? Exactly. And it really cannot be overstated how much that um, these companies with Uber being at the top have really created the, you know, we, we know about the satanic mills of the industrial age. Right. These are the satanic platforms, right? They've mm -hmm. created um, uh, the working conditions that are abhorrent, right? Working conditions that should be, uh, that, that no one should ever have to deal with or tolerate the existence of. Um, and, they've, and they've done so uh, in this like really aggressive way where it's not only that they've created these satanic platforms because it's like, all right, you know, no one goes, no one chooses to work in the satanic mills, right? No, the, the, the peasants are turned into wage laborers and are given no other option but to work in the uh -huh. satanic mills. And the same goes for Uber, right? Like people aren't, you know, su like sucking it up and being like, yeah, you know, I'm getting treated pretty shitty, but at the end of the day, I, I, I love Uber and I, I got, I got my loyalties to Uber. So, you know, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. I have another, <laughs> you know, right, right. No, 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 they, they've created the satanic platforms and, and have taken advantage of um, a really large reserve army of labor, right? A lot of people are sitting unemployed and they're desperate and Uber, uh, you know, markets to those people the right. you know you can you can be onboarded and driving for us in no time at all right you doesn't matter who right. you are where you are um or when you can work you can you can work for us and so they sucker you into it and then they chain you to the machine right, right. and then next next thing you know uh you know the, the satanic platform is too big to fail Right. It's it's not a coincidence that these companies arose in the direct aftermath of uh, the 2008 and 9 uh, financial meltdown. Right. It is not a coincidence that after millions of people were you know kicked out of their own homes, right, or left immiserated and under a pile of debt, that a company came along promising uh, wages that were unrealistic. Right. Uh, if only they decided to subjugate themselves to, uh, you know, miserable, uh, miserable conditions without any sort of dignity. I mean, there's a reason why 
literally not a, more than 90% of all Uber and Lyft drivers uh, quit, you know, after the first year, the burn rate is, you know, if you, if any company, if Apple had a burn rate of 90 plus percent every year that it's existed, what would you say about the working conditions there? You know, like we would understand immediately what's going on, but because it's a technology company that works through an app and because they're drivers in subservient positions that bury us from place to place, we don't really care about it. But at the end of the day, you know, this is, this is what Uber is defending when it's trying to threaten to leave, right? And you know, that threat to leave, reclassification would pose a fundamental threat uh, to a business model that doesn't work in the first place. It's unprofitable, it's unworkable, it requires exploitation of drivers, of passengers, and regulations, because it needs to circumvent regulations and it needs to undermine them so that it can be legal to do the stuff that it's doing, which everyone understands is illegal and immoral, but if you can at least scale back the law, then it doesn't really matter what the moral critique is. Then those people are just Luddites, right? They're just people railing against progress. They're people who are not willing to, to uh, take a step into the future, whether or not that is on the backs of 200,000 drivers that are burned through each year with Uber or with Lyft. Right. right. And and so just to, to back it up a little bit for those who don't know, um, in response to uh, AB5 and in response to a judge basically, you know, throwing out their arguments to saying, you know, this is nonsense, um, you know, the, you do not get your exemption. Um, Uber and Lyft are threatening to leave the, like the entire market of California, right? They're just going to like shut down the app and, 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 and get out of Dodge. Um, like that's, that's their threat um, in response to this is essentially, you know, they're, they're trying to create a standoff. Um, they're trying to create and take advantage of their, uh, you know, too big to fail status where it's like, um, you know, oh, you think it's bad now, uh, well, if you, if you don't give us what we want, we're going to leave. And then all those people that we're exploiting, but also rely on us um, for, mm -hmm. you know, some minuscule wages, um, they're going to be out of a job, right? Like, so that, that's right. their threat. And it's not, and it's not 100% an idle threat. I mean, on the one hand, Uber has made this threat in multiple cities, in at least eight cities, it has threatened to leave if a regulation was not overturned. And a lot of these times, these are regulations that are uh, safety measures meant to respond to the fact that, you know, for example, in Austin or in, you know, other cities in Texas, uh, sexual assaults were happening on the platform. And so cities said, okay, let's have a fingerprinting law, right, so that we know who the drivers are. Uh, and so that if something happens again, we would be able to figure out who, who you know, did it instead of uh, having, having no idea at all, instead of having, you know, sometimes in some cities, uh, fake accounts that are being used by people. And what did Uber do? It threatened to leave and then only returned after it convinced the governor to undermine a law that was passed by people in the cities uh, that were immediately concerned with the safety of the platform. All right, so on the one hand, it is real that Uber you know, has left cities to return to them. But on the other hand, uh, California has two of Uber's largest markets in the world, right? It's five major markets are Los Angeles, the Bay Area, New York, Brazil, specifically Sao Paulo, uh, and London. And in all of those places, it is under attack. It, so it's a, little, it's a little hard to imagine that even in the middle of a pandemic, it would leave um, ride-hailing markets in California 
and uh, specifically Los Angeles and Bay Area, but also on the other hand, as we'll get to later, uh, it is still able to um, to prop up the Uber Eats, the food delivery service that it has there. And that may be a reason why if it leaves, um, it'll still, you know, it might leave, right? Because it's food delivery is not gonna be affected by this decision, but only ride hailing is, which has had a significant uh, decline. And it's, it's, you know, it's the example of Austin is really interesting because that was over licensure, right? So unlike in California, right. where it's about like, now you need to treat your quote unquote contractors as what they are, which are employees. Um, in Austin, it was just like, no, like you just need a licensure set up, right? We just need to know who's driving for Uber. Right. <laughs> and that, that alone was too much for them to bear. It really shows that their business model is built on burn rates, right? As you were mentioning, their burn rate for labor is, is is insane just as their burn rate for capital is also insane i right. mean you know it's it's you know it's a satanic platform um but at the heart of that is just a massive like forge or a massive furnace i should say um that they are just chucking unimaginable amounts of capital and labor which means money and people into this furnace um to keep it alive to keep it going that's what their whole business is built on so so it's like you've got on one hand this really uh, exploitative labor model which is completely unsustainable but on the other hand you've got an entire financial model which is equally unsustainable right and that's why the threat to leave happened, right? Because at the end of the day, it's not simply about the regulation. This is a very important moment for Uber, for Lyft, for DoorDash. If they're able to use, to leverage this threat to either uh, get an exemption from AB5, to get a stay on the injunction so that they have more time to appeal, or to get their ballot measure approved so that they get an exemption, their profit model is safe. Or not profit model, their business model, and their their, their pitch to investors about profitability is safe. But if not, they're fucked. Because after ride hail comes food delivery. And if you come after every, if you come after food delivery and ride hail, which are the two best, you know, and best is a kind word, uh, best divisions of these businesses, uh, then you undermine any sort of value proposition to the investors and you kill the company, which has never once ever been profitable, right? But has been saying in the future, one day, please stay with us, we will be profitable. Yeah, and how is that profitability going to happen? <laughs> it's because, uh, you know, the, 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 the core thing that these businesses produce is not the service that is nominally attached to them, whether that's that's rides or that's food delivery. No, as um, a, a, a duo of really excellent law papers, which I've learned a lot from, and I'll shout them out right now, is one is um, uh, by Ruth Collier, Vina Dubal, and Christopher Carter called Disrupting Regulation and Regulating Disruption. Uh, excellent paper, really about the politics of Uber. Um, and then another one, which I think has gotten less attention, but is just as important, I, I would say, as the as the first paper is um, by Elizabeth Pullman and Jordan Berry called Regulatory Entrepreneurship. And they really lay out the case um, in, a, in, in, in a clear way. I'll, I'll quote from, from them just briefly here. Uh, quote, uh, 
In recent years, a number of high-profile companies have devoted an enormous amount of resources to pursuing lines of business that carry tremendous legal risk. The laws governing these new business lines are unclear, unfavorable, or even prohibit the activity outright. These companies' fortunes, whether they will go bankrupt or be worth billions, often depends not only on the whims of the markets, but also on the resolution of legal issues concerning a core aspect of their business. These companies understand this, and each makes changing the law a material part of its business plan. We call this activity regulatory entrepreneurship. Now, this paper was written like four years ago. Um, so, that, I mean, they saw the, the, the writing on the wall, right? This, this paper could have been written tomorrow uh, right. because of how, how much it is directly about what's going on with Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, all of them right now, and how this case in California is really bringing this business model to the fore that what they produce is not a service. What, they, what their, their main business model and the main thing they produce is regulatory change. Right. You know, I think, you know, we really need to stop thinking about the company, about Uber, about Lyft, about all these right hill companies as like enterprises that just need to have the right amount of growth or a certain formula. I mean, at the end of the day, right, they're accelerationist vectors or capital accumulation. They allow a specific set of investors who, you know, throw billions into the company to undermine laws that would prevent them from making billions more. When you invest $5 billion into Uber, you are not investing $5 billion into a company that has healthy metrics for sustainability, for profitability. You're investing $5 billion into a company that will and has wantonly break, broken the law, mobilized uh, citizens and users to support its own political measures to reform the law and investing in a company that no matter what will risk whatever it needs to to get the long-term result, whether that means temporarily leaving a market, whether that means lobbying um, legislators in the United States, whether that means corruption overseas, Uber will do whatever it needs to do to get embedded into an infrastructure so that it can make a profit so when you're making when it, so we need to understand that uber is again it's not like a typical company it is not a company that's offering a real product this company that's offering capital accumulation and returns right and every i think the cynical view is the appropriate view here right i think that that also feeds into the analysis we need going into its financial reports, right? Because the financial reports, you know, I'm sure, you know, we all have fun. I've had fun with ripping Uber for not being profitable with having horrible quarters, right? But you dig a little bit deeper and you see that Uber actually over its entire, you know, lifespan has burned inordinate amounts of money. I think it's like, you know, something like $23.5 billion over, <laughs> over the past, you know, five, I'm, five I'm glad that I'm glad there's so much wealth in the world that we can just like kiss and miss $23 billion and be like, mm, I don't know, I dropped it and didn't even feel like picking it up, right? <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's money that uh, if any other company lost that much, it would be, we would all honestly say that it's, uh, it's fucked, right? But Uber <laughs> has a very good strategy about convincing people to ignore and not report on these things. And I think that's what we want to like get into or, or dive into because 
I think once you come away with a clear understanding of that, it's hard to stand to listen to people rave about Uber and Lyft, right? If it's such a if it's such a good opportunity, it's not a good opportunity for workers, right? It's horrible for workers. And even on the logic of capitalists themselves, it's horrible for them. It's inefficient, it's wasteful, it burns all the money that they invest. Yeah. If 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 we understand it as in traditional measures of like the profit imperative, which I think gets to a core part too, is that we have to, we have to expand our minds. We have to go a little galaxy brain on this and understand that Uber is not that kind of business, right? Uber is a new kind of business. It's, and I think you really nailed it uh, just a minute ago, Ed, where Uber is best understood um, as, as two things. One is a massive lobbying operation with an app attached to it. Um, and so in that way, what, what the uh, VCs are investing in when they invest in Uber is not return on investment in terms of money. They're investing on the production of a certain future, right? They're investing in return on investment in terms of changes in regulation, changes in the political economic landscape, and opening up new types of futures uh, in which these kinds of businesses and these kinds of ways of, of, of doing control of, of controlling labor, of controlling services um, is not only possible, but is able to thrive and becomes the norm. Right. So that's, that's on one hand, that's what, that's what we, that's what investment in Uber is really about. Um, and I think these people understand it, right? I think these VCs, um, whether it's, you know, uh, Mayushi Sun and SoftBank, or whether it's, you know, Paul Graham or Horowitz, or, you know, the people in Silicon Valley, um, I think they totally understand that that's what Uber, that's what investment in Uber is. Uh, it's, right. it's, you know, and the, the flip side of that, and I think we can dive into this um, later more, is that it's also about capital accumulation, but again, it's not about money capital, it's about data capital, right? It's about accumulating a giant amount of extremely valuable data about how people move around places, um, data about logistics, data about uh, everything from, you know, what, what you're eating to how you get through a city, the fastest, you know, all of that kind of data is really, really, really valuable for governments and corporations and, you know, ones that exist and ones that don't yet exist. Um, and, and that's also what Uber really has. And you can't readily, like you can't go to the data bank and exchange your data for money um, in this kind of one-to-one -one monetization. Um, and right. so there's a bit of like an investment in, the, in, in a potential future there. But that's also what Uber is really all about, right? It's about that, it's about that data. Right, you know, and I think, you know, that I think is like a real, we need to really turn away from the, the typical ways that we all think about Uber, the way that we think about ride hailing are at the end of the day, no matter what, in response to or result of the PR campaigns of these companies. You know, when we're specifically arguing questions about whether or not workers have specific agency or autonomy, we're arguing about things that Uber has told us are true. When we're arguing about the consumer welfare of Uber or Lyft, we're arguing that because the economics team at Uber published a bunch of papers saying that Uber has, you know, billions of dollars in consumer welfare that it yields, even though it increases pollution, 
accidents, traffic congestion, right? You know, and that if we really want to step away and be objective about it, we just need to simply go to the part which people don't talk about, which is its finances, right? And I think we want to, you know, talk about that there are, you know, Uber intentionally constructs these things to be hard to understand. You know, it releases, it has released uh, IPO documents, which the SEC requires of any company that goes public. It has released, you know, financial reports every single quarter, but all of those are hard to parse. They're, all of them are hard to, you know, really, um, you know, dive into. And so as a result, I think like, you know, a few introductory terms that will, that are going to be useful to people, you know, uh, the, the main one is going to be gap, you know, um, gap refers to, you know, generally accepted accounting principles. You know, when I am reporting on my profits, when I'm reporting on the money that I lost or made, if I report it in this way, it's the, it's the usual way that most companies do. And if I don't, then you should be asking questions about why I'm not. Uber reports in something called EBITDA, right? And that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And those are basically just fancy names for saying before, you know, um, assets that you have, large fixed assets usually um, lose value, right? Or if you have a lot of debt, or if you have a lot of taxes that you have to pay, interest, you know, things like that, that undermine your earnings. But Uber doesn't actually have any of those, and it still uses that metric. You know, Uber is a company that the only thing it owns are the or, or literally the workers that, uh, <laughs> that it, uh, you know, moves from uh, day to day and the algorithms that manage them. You know, that's it. Mm. Um, and yet it uses EBITDA specifically. It doesn't even use EBITDA. It uses it, uh, something called an adjusted form of EBITDA, right, to present manipulated and distorted financial images that convince investors it's closer to profitability than the reality it is. You know, I think one major example is the reason it uses adjusted EBITDA is because it, it allowed Uber to, to literally write out of its books $5 billion that it spent on uh, stock-based employee compensation, right? If you look at all the numbers over that Uber has over the past, you know, four years of earnings, they are, they do not, accurately communicate how unprofitable it is in part because it erased away the fact that it has spent that much money right um there are also you know other things like it has a it has something called a segmented adjusted EBITDA right and in that you know it gets rid of all IT expenses it gets rid of lobbying expenses it gets rid of all sort of corporate costs that it has to pay um that you know would that are significant because Uber is a global company and that are significant in ways that uh, undermine um, our ability to, and investors' ability, really, um, <laughs> uh, to um, you know get a clear picture of uh, what's going on with um, you know with Uber. And this is I this think is that, some, this is some three Michelin star level cook in the books. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, what this no. really is. <laughs> and and I mean, on one level, I admire the grift. You know, uh, a company that is willing to kind of just like blatantly lie to people is a company that has also made a gamble that no one is going to really call it out. And no one does. I mean, you know, like... Because it's insanely think, complex. I mean, really underlying really the fact that like economics is astrology for libertarians. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and yeah, the, yeah. The, the economists at Uber are fucking bewitching the moon right now. Like we can't, <laughs> we can't let these witches be casting spells on the moon. <laughs> no, I think, that, I think that's 100% right. Because, you know, the, when you sit down and you, if, you, if I had five minutes with like 
whoever makes these decisions. You know, if you ask them really at the end of the day, why is it that they use these figures? I'm sure you're not going to get an answer. But like you said, they're so hard to break down. You know, in my, uh, I'd written like a part of my undergrad thesis on Uber's finances. And one of the largest headaches I had was taking the graphs that they already had and the data they already had and, and, and turning it into something that was, uh, something that was, uh, you know, um, accurate and readable and translatable to the, uh, to the public because a lot of it is contradictory. A lot of it is hidden in footnotes. A lot of it is like, um, you know, something that you, you're going to have to learn more about these terms in, in the first place, but it should be it should be the job and the responsibility right of the business press to do those things for us but they don't and i think that that's also something that you know in the in this prelude to the finance dive we need to talk about right which is that i think in many levels you know sam harnett he's a journalist at uh, qqd that wrote a, a really great paper on the ways in which the media specifically non-labor journalism uh, failed us with coverage of uber and tech in the early days right uh, but also, uh, you know, we've been failed by the lack of, you know, I don't know if it's financial literacy or I, I don't, I mean, because I also, I don't want to knock everyone for not being able to understand documents constructed by lawyers to intentionally deceive people, right? But the lack of that at the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, at the New York Times, Washington Post has allowed us to, um, you know, adopt in our bones, ideas about Uber that are not real, right? That it's around the corner from profitability, that one day it might allow us to get driverless cars, that one day it might, that it's a company that grows fast, that it's a company that has fundamentally sound economics, when in reality, you look at it, it's just a taxi company, right? And taxi companies have fundamental economics that do not allow them to scale past cities or regions, you know? There's no, there's, is there a global <laughs> taxi company? <laughs> it, it makes me it makes me think i mean the the whole i mean again they're they're really taking advantage of uh, of a really awful political economy of the media in the sense that they're right. just i mean people don't have the resources or time right. or expertise um in large part to dig into these intentionally abstruse things and that's not even withstanding the you know the the kind of tech media 1.0 we might call it which was really just fucking like witlessly on board right just ate up the the tech pr and shitted out the other end um as you know in a in a kind of laundered form and i mean so you definitely still have people like that hanging around i mean i just remember this fucking tweet from um uh noah opinion uh from, oh. <laughs> from, from bloomberg opinion where like there's some you know like I think it was like Tech Times, which is, you know, one of these like news aggregator, like, P you know, it's just a press release aggregator site um, right. talking about Elon Musk is uh, Neuralink and the, you know, soon we'll be able to, you know, uh, intentionally control our emotions and stuff. And Noah Opinion was just, just retweeted it like, whoa, this is cool. This is going to be huge. It's like, yeah, <laughs> like, oh my God. You I fucking saw that imbecile. Like, <laughs> I mean, uh, no, the fuck we won't. <laughs> the yeah, fuck no, the fuck we won't. <laughs> yeah yeah be, i i can't remember who who responded but it was so good it was just like yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna trust elon musk uh to create a technology <laughs> to regulate emotions the man the man who is famously good at regulating his own emotions oh yeah yeah let's 
everybody, we're going to put in this implant in your head. It, it is made by the same guy who called um, a British explorer pedophile. Um, and he, it's <laughs> right. And the, then the, went to, the, went the guy to who, the guy who does like Zanny and wine tweeting, like no one else, man. He, he's yeah, a, he's oh a fucking God. master at the form. Uh, but, some, but I mean, some level I, I do respect that he like truly is unwilling to stop ruining his own life, you know, and, uh, and, and no matter, <laughs> no matter what he need, he needs to have his Zannies, he needs to have his, uh, his bottle of wine and he needs to log the fuck on for four to five hours. Usually when, <laughs> usually when his investors are asleep or the SEC is asleep so that they can't find him again. Right. I'll say, I'll say, I'll say allegedly he needs his Zanny and wine. Allegedly. I mean, we're, in, we're not alleging that, uh, I, but I've seen, I've seen the allegations other, you know, elsewhere. And we're, ju- we're just allegedly reporting on, on what we Right. <laughs> you know, it, we we are theoretically if there were someone to be doing this they would happen to remind us of elon musk but that doesn't mean they are elon musk right yeah yeah he would never but, do that so i mean so you've got i mean something like bloomberg opinion is unique because it's like it's like a group home for imbeciles right so i mean we, we expect <laughs> yes. that can we expect those kinds of bad takes from a place like Bloomberg Opinion, but even so, even places like um, like the FT, the Financial Times, which you know, it's it, it's it may be little known outside of some uh, you know the the hardcore uh, Marxist you know the analytical Marxist yeah. uh, circles. Which is the same. And, yeah. FT is actually like a Marxist publication. Yeah, lo, no, Loki. You know, I started. Loki FT does like the, They do the best left-wing uh, economic analysis, like constantly. Uh, they, their editor, I forgot, I forget her name. I think Isabella Kaminska, something like that. She is she the editor um, now? I know she used to like run the Alphaville blog, which was oh, like. Oh yes, like, no. Like Alphaville. the Alphaville yes. newsletter is like, you know, that's a, oh, that's a must were, read. Alphaville used to be talking about how like Silicon Valley is just gospel plan 2.0 and then how like mm. there's no such, <laughs> and how like the, and how um, Uber, you know, Lyft, Airbnb all operated off of venture capital subsidies, like stuff that like now we kind of take for granted. But when they were running it, people were like, you're, you're, you've lost the fucking plot, mate. You know, like you have no idea what you're <laughs> talking about. <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, F, you know, even, even a place like FT, which has been like low key slash high T high key been doing amazing, um, like analytical, like kind of like Marxist analysis of this stuff for a while. Like Mm -hmm. even like they can only do so much, right. They can only spend so much time diving into these, uh, quarterly reports and these earning reports and, and and you know this this as you were getting at this really esoteric financial matter which is meant to not be understood right which is why they keep coming up with things like segmented justice uh, you know EBITDA and, and you know the, these kinds of yeah. things like that where you're like what the like like I'm I'm completely lost and that's by that's by design right it's like how much money did you actually fucking lose and then it's just like an essay with a footnote that leads to 10 other footnotes that if you piece them together gives you the last footnote you're supposed to look at to figure out how much money they lost you know? it's, it's it's a reason why <laughs> um uh you know uh, uh hubert haran who is a you know a, a, an excellent um academic who's been you know econ- uh, economic you know doing a really great um 
uh, economic analysis of Uber and has been mm-hmm. for a while. There's a reason why he has a, well, it's up to 23 parts now um, on making oh, yeah. capitalism of, of like been, analyzing yeah. the economics of Uber. Uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, just insane. Like, it's great that people are doing the work, but but it's also like, and Uber knows this. You cannot yeah. expect you cannot expect uh, a reporter unless you're Ed, who's uh, you know has an obsession <laughs> with Uber uh, to read. I do. I am obsessed. <laughs> who can read all twenty three parts of of you know Haran's ongoing you know uh, the economics of Uber <laughs> you know blog post mm-hmm. series and it's like who 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 can read that and Uber knows that right and and they mm. thumb their nose. Um, at the idea, and 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 they do it blatantly. I mean, I was really toying with the idea of us doing, um, you know, a really bad reading series of Dara uh, <laughs> New York Times op-ed, um, mm-hmm. but I, I've decided to save all of us the the pain for that. And it's been pretty, it's been well picked apart. But there's so many blatant lies and so many blatant. Wow. Um, conflations and you know there, there's so much there's there's so much pure disrespect in that in that op-ed in the fact in the sense that uh he, he, disrespecting um and thumbing their nose at the idea that uh that that they they will face any consequences in the at all for blatantly lying in the pages of the new york times you know op-ed um right it doesn't matter. Like people are going to either take their word at it or they're going to call them out on Twitter or whatever. And then right. like what's going to come out of it? I mean, nothing. Right. Yeah. I think that's definitely a point we should circle around to too, because I think, you know, this last week has been really important series of PR pushes by Uber, uh, that op-ed, um, a CNBC uh, interview with Stephanie rule, uh, podcast appearances with Harry Campbell, who's the rideshare guy. He's just like, you know, he's probably one of the more like foremost in public uh, bloggers of, uh, uh, you know, Uber uh, side mark. He's also like a venture capitalist and an entrepreneur, um, you know, but, um, you know, he's, he, he and others, like they have networks that are important for Uber to convince because these are the people who are trying to make their minds up about whether or not they should support um, whether they should support Uber's, you know, proposition, right? Um, and I think, uh, like, you know, we we should, yeah, we should like go into the finances because I really think, like, that, you know, the 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 finances kind of make it really clear that, like, you know, let's say you're a capitalist who doesn't give a fuck about labor conditions, the money here is not working. Obviously, the regulatory shit is not working. It's more expensive than it needs mm. to be because now we're having like huge news cycles about whether or not a company can leave the state and how it'll fuck over people and hold them hostage during a pandemic. Yeah, even if we understand it, even if we understand it as a, as a lobbying, um, you know, a, a lobbying organization with an app, they're being insanely inefficient with even that, right. like, that business proposition. So right. t- take us by the hand and lead us into these finances a, a little bit deeper, Ed. So I think, you know, there's a lot of places we can start. I think that the best place to start was, is with the second quarter 2020 earnings. You know, these were earnings, I think they were released about a week ago. Um, and I think also, uh, you know, shout out to Hubert Haran, who has done a lot of the really hard work of, I mean, 
in his if you read his stuff he's not going to call it hard work he calls it pretty simple but he's done the work in terms of like you know sort of obsessively uh laying out the finances and the way you would expect the company to do themselves if they were interested in investors understanding the business right and you know so let's look at if you look at the second quarter 2020 that's the most recent earnings i mean the numbers are uh trash you know pretty fucking horrible uh you know in the first half of 20 of 2020 so that's first and second quarter uh gap of loss and this is again generally accepted accounting principles the loss was four and a uh, 4.7 billion dollars right the margin on gap and this is the profit margin after all the accounts uh after all the expenses are accounted for is negative 81 percent right so for 20 <laughs> like <laughs> i want i i think like i don't i can't really think of any company you know, some people like to try to compare Amazon to Uber because it was not cash positive in some sense for a while. But they forget to mention that Uber, I mean, that Amazon was actually cash positive and then it took a loss because it took its profit and it reinvested it into the company. Uber has never, never made a profit, right? It's just negative 81% right now, which is, uh, which is bad. So I know, I know it's, I know it's hack to do, but I, I'm really, I really can't help but think of the drill tweet about like spending, you know, ten thousand dollars on candles. Oh. <laughs> help someone, yeah. help someone, help me with my budget. My oh, family yeah. is starving. That's Dara think, right as, now. <laughs> as a, as a side note, I, this is an important detail I, um, that also should help you, help you know people listening get a sense of how bad uber is with money right so in china right china uber was performing so poorly it sold its business in china in 2016 it spent one and a half billion dollars on operations in china do you want to guess how much money it made in revenue Mm, I'm I'm gonna go with negative <laughs> negative one and a half billion. <laughs> it made it made off of it spent one and a half billion dollars in China that year, and it made one million dollars in revenue. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so it spent one and a half billion with a B yes, to make B. one million with an M, right? I like this is that. Some people will try to dismiss that as um, evidence that it was uniquely unprofitable in China. But as you'll see, this is just actually how it works for Uber in general, right? You know, that Uber has never been profitable and its, it's, its unit economics don't make any sense, right? So for, you know, Hubert Duran, you know, bless him, you know, did some sort of, you know, accounting fixes on that. Uh, also looked back at 2019. In 2019, he, sa he saw that for the entire year, right? Of the gap loss was about 5.9 billion with a negative 42% margin. So already this year, Uber has blown that out of the water, partly because of the coronavirus. Um, uh, but you'll see it's also not simply because of that, um, as once we get into Uber Eats, right? So over the last four and a half years, Uber has lost $23.2 billion, uh, right? It has taken that money from investors and just shot it through the fucking drain, burned it. I mean, you could, yeah, I, I don't know. You could bet on anything else and make more money than this. If this wasn't attached to like a satanic exploitation machine, then, you know, I, I would love it. This is fucking accelerationism. <laughs> no, yeah, look. Like fucking take that VC money and just burn it 
throw it like 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 explode it into the sun (laughs) i need need like the one the one rich marxist that listens to like hear this and then come up with an idea for pitching to silicon valley to take billions of their money burn it on paper and just redistribute it i don't know what you want to do with it fund uh, militias in some other country (laughs) the terrible thing is is that uh this is also accelerationism in the sense that that's this is this is actually existing accelerationism which is Mm -hmm. important to under under mark that um uh, that the the massive amount of like exploitation, um, the massive immiseration of already immiserated people, uh, that's also part of accelerationism. <laughs> you know? Right, right. You know, so I think you know when you look at that, the twenty twenty numbers are bad, the twenty nineteen numbers are bad. But if we really want to understand the twenty nineteen numbers, I think it makes sense to kind of jump a little bit back to twenty eighteen, right? So, because 2018 is also 2018, we have the results for before the IPO based on some certain lakes, but the IPO presents numbers in a radically different light that is important to understand in the way that Uber fabricates its data, right? So, you know, in tw- uh, the IPO, I think the IPO documents released around April. You know, at that point, Uber had only lost 14 billion dollars, right? So, in so since then, it has lost another. Uh, uh, 9.2 billion dollars um, and it was seeking a hundred billion dollar valuation insane <laughs> you know uh, second only to Facebook I think um, and uh, te- it wanted to raise 10 billion dollars in the IPO right the key pitch to this in, it told its investors look in in 2017 we lost 4.03 billion dollars but in 2018 we we had a profit of 997 million dollars uh the 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 thing that they told investors here was a fucking lie right (laughs) they told investors that they improved their margins by five billion dollars but what you actually realize when you step back is that what the five billion dollars they're claiming is they sold off failed operations in china southeast asia and russia to uh dd uh um Grab and Yandex, um, and the sales they they attributed to net income based on the private valuation of these companies because they got a debt or equity stake in them, right? So they first tried this in 2018 in the first quarter of 2018, where suddenly Uber said, "Look, we got three, you know, point zero zero three billion dollars in income from a sale to Grab, right?" Uh, there was, but they didn't. You know what actually happened was they they closed down the failed operations. They zeroed out the the losses that they took in uh, Southeast Asia, but they put on the books uh, the debt position or the equity position that they had in the company based on a private evaluate private valuation because the company has not gone private, uh, public yet, right? So just basically like Uber's like, oh, this company is worth uh, you know fifteen billion dollars. We have a ten to fifteen percent stake in it. That's how much our <laughs> that's how much our sale was worth. When, you know that's not actually how you calculate the how, how you calculate value, especially if you're trying to communicate to investors what your income actually is, right? You know, so that quarter, Uber then also said, "Hey, we cut our margins by 500 million, right?" And important to look at is if when you when you zoom in on how the margins improved by 500 million, 280 million was through the pricing experiments they do, where they cut the fares of drivers. Um, or they cut the way that drivers take in money from everybody else. And then 277 million other dollars, right, were from um, 
you know, cuts in general administrative expenses for future growth, right? So at the same time that everybody in 2018 is saying Uber is growing stupendously, Uber is the future of the transportation economy, it's gonna do driverless cars, it's gonna do automated uh, delivery, it's gonna do all this bullshit that's gonna make it the Amazon of transportation, it's cutting spending on all of that so that it can then tell investors that it improved its margins uh, by $500 million. And I think this takes us back, you know, 2019, where I think Hubert Haran had a nice a line where he says, if one takes Uber's judgments at face value, one could conclude Uber's only profitable activity is getting paid off for discontinuing staggering unprofitable markets, right? That's it. That's mm -hmm. Uber's main trick, you know? When we, <clears throat> we go back to 2019, we look at 2020, we see, you know, in 2019, Uber had, you know, $8.5 billion in losses negative 60% margin on its profit, $14.1 billion in revenue. That's uh, dog shit uh, numbers, you know. Mm -hmm. um, these are not numbers that in any way, shape, or form can be spun as a company that is, you know, interested in moving towards profitability. It burned more money than it did in the year before. In, two, in 2018, it burned $2.2 billion. In 2019, it was $5.1 billion. And revenue growth was 95% in 2017, 37% in 2018, 14% in 2019. Non-ride businesses, they grew fast, you know, because Uber started to shift spending there. But these businesses also have shitty economics, worse than rides, right? Yeah, I mean, this is this is classic growth machine stuff as well, right? Mm -hmm. Where they, they are essentially trying to outgrow uh failure right and i mean and so we, we we you know we talked about it at the beginning as this kind of too big to fail platform and that's exactly i mean if we think about what their end game is right like people have talked about um uber in terms of an of a monopoly right like that like if we think of one possible or logical end game it's that they are investing so much up front and growing and changing regulation uh, in, you know, uh, eating competitors or shutting them out of the market where, you know, it's, it, so in this sense, then it might be seen as a kind of monopolistic um, strategy, which, you know, classic Silicon Valley. Um, I mean, that, the, uh, that's pretty explicit Silicon Valley economics, especially if you listen to people like Peter Till and that kind of arm of, of Silicon Valley, you know, quote unquote thought, um, you know, they, they're all about monopoly. Monopoly is actually good. And right. so we could, we could see it as that. Um, but that almost doesn't, I don't think that goes quite far enough. I really do think that it's, it's a too big to fail and we can see this gambit playing out. Um, if we loop it around to their threats to leave, it's about creating a business that is so integrated into the operation of essential services uh, in, in places, whether that's travel or food delivery, um, that they, they are so integrated into it uh, and that any threat to, the, to their business model, any you know, through like AB5, um, any threat to the, the smooth uh, and un, un, unimpeded, unimpeded uh, operation of, the, of their services be, has the risk of these like massive reverberations, um, not only in terms of the, of the labor pool, right? Like the, like the huge amount of people that do churn through the, the, app form, the, the platform, but also um, the even more 
amount of people who rely on it daily, weekly for getting food, for getting places, for, you know, for these, uh, these essential functions and operations of, right. of, of, of particularly urban life, but life in general. Right. I think that's really important because, you know, when you, you know, like you said, you know, the Uber's goal in one way or another is to integrate itself into the daily, into the infrastructure that we use for daily life, right? If you, and it needs to do that on one hand, right? Uber has never, ever presented any evidence to its investors that it's profitable. You look at the numbers that we mentioned earlier, you look at the ways in which, um, you know, that uh, rides in of itself has cratered during the pandemic. It's fallen by, what, 74% from 3 billion to 790 million, which mm -hmm. also means that it's the daily 18 million trips it does have fallen down to what, like maybe 4 million across the entire world. Um, you know, and if it's five major markets are in the United States, Brazil, and, and, and the United Kingdom, then those markets are also like what only doing like a few hundred thousand trips a day compared to a few million. But, you know, the, the revenue has fallen substantially um, as a result of COVID-19. The, the places that it's praised significantly, their, their revenue has increased. For example, Uber Eats revenue increased, you know, doubled, right? And, but at the same time, even though his revenue doubled, right, what was the profitability increase? The profitability increase was still worse uh, than Uber rides, right? And the, when, you, when you use their own metric, their own metric, which is made to make them look better than usual, they adjusted the EBITDA, their profit margin only increased by 54 million from negative 286 million to 200 to negative 232 million, right? So when you step back and you look at the fact that nothing is profitable and nothing has any sort of good economics, you see, look, the real path to survival is integrating it into daily life so that you cannot remove it and so that people need to fund it. They need to subsidize it. They need to integrate it further and further into daily life. I mean, that's why Uber is doing deals with, you know, the, uh, the GAO, you know, with uh, government agencies, the Department of Defense, with, you know, any sort of civilian authorities that will allow it to create so uh, software for urban transport, whether that's buses, trains, or any sort of transportation. Logistics, mechanism. right? Delivery, logistics, right. things like, yeah. imagine the, uh, the Uber-Amazon partnership, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, especially if... You know, the USPS goes under um, as, it, as it's under yeah. threat right now. It's not hard to imagine Uber pivoting to a like FedEx position, right? With right. and doing so through an exclusive partnership with Amazon, right? As a kind of mm -hmm. boosting it off the ground. And so next thing you know, you've got Uber deliveries. And now that's where all your platform or all your, uh, your, your packages are also coming from Uber. And, and you know, oh, but, but we can use our data to, um, you know, to make it super optimal and efficient and you know have have same day delivery you know in the five biggest metropole you know that that kind of thing i'm i, I like i i shudder to think that i'm outlining the <laughs> the business yeah. case for Honestly, this next might be. <laughs> but uh <laughs> but you know if we think I about mean, like next steps uh for for uber because they're not going to much as we want them to they're not going to like you know the wicked witch of the west get a little water on them and just like melt into sugar melt. right like <laughs> yeah. like they're they're gonna go down 
um, you know, to add another fantasy uh, reference, like the fucking Balrog, right? They're going to go down and pull everyone down with them, and they're going to go down fighting to the last right. bitter breath. Um, and, 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 you know, so, so it's, they're not going to, like this AB5 might wound them, but it's not going to kill them. And, and they will be looking for like the next thing. And, you know, I think we need to think seriously about um, what that will be and how that will further integrate into a like post COVID world. And, you know, and, right. and the, and the way in which they'll, 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 use that data they have to do things more logistics oriented right we need to we need i think really like i think this also connects to like a core idea that we have in our podcast and in other episodes right which is that look just because something exists does not in any way shape or form mean that it's a good thing a beneficial thing an advantageous thing for you right Mm -hmm. most do you have the resources to build most of the things that exist in the world most of the things that exist in the world are built because some other entity some other interest some other coalition had the interest had the the desire or the resources to drive investment into building them right just because as is likely uber may supplant delivery services or amazon or some other entity right does not mean that they're doing it because they're better for you it means that they're doing it because they're better positioned to take advantage of the government pulling funding from the thing that everybody agreed was the best service you know the usps right exactly and we can we cannot conflate the provision of a service which is a good like like you know rides or delivery um things like that those are good services we need those services but we cannot conflate the goodness of that service with the goodness of the organization in which that service is provided uh you know the the existing arrangement of that service right you know i think and that's i think that's why it's really important with uber specifically i mean uber at its core, if we take capitalists on their own logic, it's unprofitable, it's unsustainable, it's two best business lines, Uber Eats and Uber Rides, have some of the worst unit economics that any industry in you know, corporate history might have. They've never been profitable. Their profitability actually has been declining if you read some of Hubert Oran's reporting on it. And even in periods in which they've had stupendous booms, uh, the profitability has not is scaled up properly with that, right? They are never ever going to properly integrate themselves into daily life. What they rely on is subsidies from investors because investors need to subsidize them because of how competitive the market is. But the market is competitive because other companies have the same exact models of the, as them, which is other VCs and other factions of institutional investors throwing money into them to change the law in ways that benefit themselves. And and like every every good too big to fail company, when crisis comes, they're gonna need a bailout. And you know, I'm holding right. my breath for that that <laughs> that Trump bailout of Uber. And and you know, oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm so I'm sorry to uh to to lay that into existence, but you know, everything you talk about that 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 rundown is is great um, of Uber in the sense that they're because it, it's it's funny that everything you're talking about with Uber being like this unprofitable um, big behemoth blah 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 like those are all also criticisms that weirdly are never lobbed against uber by the the capitalists and neolibs and stuff but it is but those are the exact criticisms that are lobbed against the post office against the usps right. 
that's right. this massive unprofitable behemoth which again is is by design right i mean it's been completely undermined by uh republican policy to make it completely um unprofitable and yet it still does an amazing job and a really cheap subsidized service um you know so in, in a sense then to I, I i think we you know we ought to be thinking less about how do we make the post office more like Uber, and we need to be thinking more about how do we make Uber more like the post office. Right, you know, and I think, I think there is room here. You know, I truly believe that ride hailing, that transportation in general needs to be decommodified, right? And I think one of the steps to decommodify is also is, is to explain, not, not explain to capitalists, like we're not gonna win by explaining to, to Horowitz, you know, as he's, or Gurley as he's fucking trolling people on Twitter right now, uh, that transportation is fundamentally unprofitable. But figuring out some way to communicate the fact that like every single one of their ventures in this industry has failed. And not only has it failed to realize returns, uh, regulatory capture, accelerationist vectors that they desire, but it also yields returns that result in increasingly intense backlash, right? What do you think is going to happen to the society when everyone can trace subminimum wages, uh, you know, a undignified, exploitative slave labor in many cases, suicide, depression, mental health crises? What do you think happens when people can trace all those things to a core industry and a core labor pattern and a core set of investors? It's going to be a backlash, a very directed backlash. It's not generalized. And the way usual slogans, anti-capitalist sentiments are, right? If you are, if you are a capitalist, a self-aware capitalist who's interested in preserving your returns, you know, and in not result and not getting backlash coming straight at you on some basic level, you would not, you would consider ride-hailing anathema, right? But also on another level, we ourselves should recognize that you know one ride hailing is never going to work it's a, it's a bullshit industry uh with all the problems we've listed throughout this whole entire podcast but second mm -hmm. you know on the on the second part right we transportation and and i think a lot of institutions that pe that exist i was talking about before people think that since they exist they just need to be there in eternal perpetuity we need to be having a conversation about what sort of transit system we want right if we're serious about climate change we need to reduce the levels of vehicle ownership and, and, and private car transit, right? Now, Uber promised that it would do that itself, but Uber's business model demands that it, it puts more drivers on the road so that more customers have shorter wait times. What would a public system look like, right? If we were saying the end goal is to zero out or get as close to zero as possible emissions from private car transport, and also integrate into a real transit system options for people so that in off-peak demand times, also in far-flung areas that may not be serviced properly, you can still get to your job or get back home or get wherever you want. If you, if you don't have a job, or if you're not working or if you're not going home, if you need to go somewhere, you should still be able to get there, right? How do we do that? Integrating the knowledge that Uber for the past decade has collected data intimate data on everyone's uh, transportation patterns, right? Mm -hmm. All sorts of data that can be seized, that can be used, integrated, extrapolated from to build up and expand our own uh, transit system. Precisely. I mean, that, and, and, you know, they use that data uh, explicitly to, like, 
uh, blackmail cities, basically, right? They use that, yeah. they dangle that data, <laughs> right. they dangle that data in front of, uh, you know, departments of transportation in major cities and states um, and, and, and use it as a leveraging position for negotiating regulatory change, right? Like if you allow us to operate the way we want, then we'll give you limited access to some of this data. That, that's how valuable that data is to doing things like transportation planning um, that, that uh, you know, city, like major cities and states are willing to get limited access to that data uh, and in exchange for like massive regulatory exemptions. No, fuck that, right? Like we, we need to expropriate that data, right? Like um, Uber, Uber does not, Uber does not deserve to exist. And, and not only does it not deserve to exist, like it, it cannot continue to exist. Um, and at the same time, however, uh, we, we need to, we need to recognize that, um, that they've, they've done something, right? In the sense that like their app and the amount of data they've created has in different hands, organized in different ways, could contribute to actually progressive, socially beneficial innovation. Um, but the current arrangement and the goals and motivations behind that um, are instead horrendous, right? It's, it's right. extremely exploitative, extremely extractive. Um, and we also, I, I, I want to, you know, I know we're, we're getting to the end of the episode, um, but I also want to uh, loop it back around a little bit that, you know, we started by saying, you know, we've got we got we got a big game trophy in our sights. I um, mean, we've talked a lot about it in in the American uh, perspective, right? They, like in the kind of stuff that's happening in the U.S. Um, but this is this is an extremely internationalist uh, a, a, a position, right? It needs to be an, ex- an internationalist position because it's an internationalist problem and issue. Right. And you know, I really just want to flag. Um, there's some been some really great reporting. So across South America, there's massive strikes um, by Uber workers right now uh, because if if things are bad and, and here um, in right. in cities like San Francisco, New York, Seattle, right, if things are bad here and they are, they are even worse um, in its large markets in Brazil as well as like right. Argentina and Chile. Right, like they like really, really bad. Mexico, Ecuador. Um, I want to give a shout out to to a really great reported piece uh, in in Motherboard and Vice, um, called by uh, Martha Pikowski and Rafael Vieja um, on the the gig worker strikes throughout Latin America, and it really just shows that like um, we need those we need those international solidarities. But we also need to look to the more militant worker organizations in the in South America to inform what ought to be being done in North America, right? Um, if if like if they can do it down there, where where uh, conditions are far worse and and more risky, it's a lot more risky to to do that kind of organizing and striking. Um, in, in, in those countries down in Latin America, if they can do it down there, then uh, we can do it here, whether, you know, particularly we in North America, um, right. you know, and, and there, there's a, a, a quote from, from that piece by, piece by Martha and Rafael um, that just really stands out to me. And I think it's something 
I wanna I wanna bring us to an end um, with with this piece, and I'll hand it over to you before we go ahead for for last words on on uh, Uber. Um, but there, there's a quote from a a, a worker um, in that piece where it says, "Quote the moto boys, which are what delivery workers um, in Brazil are called. The moto boys call themselves quote cloud people, always connected, waiting for work, roving the city." that's an insanely bleak thing that that and that that shows that shows the kind of biopolitics that these platforms have right that it shows the kind of um the 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 perception of 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 themselves as you know these cloud people as always networked always connected um always controlled by some you know algorithmic overseer uh, it shows it, it like I just can't think of a better way to emphasize those conditions. And all I can say is, you know, no, don't like that. Yeah. Put, put that, <laughs> put that back, put that back in the fucking Philip K. Dick novel where you found it, <laughs> and, and 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 close that book and throw it away, right? Like mm-hmm. I, that is not that is, that is not what we want. But you know, yeah, that you is know. not the kind of future what we want, and it's not the way that we at all want to be organizing the provision of of a service, um, and and you know the the provision of a subjectivity, right? That is not right. Uh, what we should be striving for. I think yeah, definitely shout out to Martha because her reporting, you know, centered in uh, Mexico, uh, Central America, Latin America. It is really some of the best in fleshing out the ways that, you know, workers and people in communities where violence is a real fucking specter constantly, either because of a corporation or it's mediated actors, um, uh, the ways in which people organize still and resist because they want, at the end of the day, better lives for themselves and, their, and the people that they know, right? And, and uh, I really encourage people to look at her uh, reporting to get a good, it's a good it's a good shot of optimism at the ways in which people can organize even in the face of uh, despair or violence or pessimism, right? And you know, I think with Uber, you know, Uber appears to be too big to fail. Uber appear Uber is holding hostage 300,000 drivers. It's holding hostage the millions of people that you know day by day, or week by week, or month by month rely on it for essential trips. But that should not scare us away from the task of making a transit system why should a transit system be at the behest of private interests that are interested in profits not even not even interested in profits because they acknowledge they'll never make profits but interested in creating a, a regulatory environment where their other investments will make profits we want a transit system we want an employment system we want a labor system that treats people fairly that gets people where they need to be and meets their needs and meets their desires as human beings and does not try to control them with algorithmic overseers, does not try to pay them with sub-minimum wages, does not try to lie to them that, you know, that, uh, you know, slavery's flexibility, you know, slavery's freedom in that fucking 1984 <laughs> quote, you know, <laughs> this is the shit we do not want. And, and, and we need to, re- and on all honesty, we need to take a serious look at why it is that Uber has convinced us 
to do all sorts of quibbling and buts and, and exceptions instead of calling out an immoral, unprofitable, unworkable system for what it is, which is a giant steaming pile of turd. <laughs> yeah, fucking bullshit. It should not exist. It will not exist if we get our way. And honestly, if it leaves California on August 20th on fucking Uber Day, then fuck them. We can build the the transit system and the labor system that we want that'll take people seriously as human beings that'll give them dignity that'll give them the wages that they deserve and that'll connect people to the places they need to go you know fuck the company that couldn't make a profit in the goddamn you know decade that it's been existing you know that's Look. right and and so on that note we'll say that uber day august 20th that's not the end that's the beginning and it's but that now the, the question is the beginning of what? The beginning mm -hmm. of what pathway are we going down at the end, uh, you know, starting on Uber Day on, on, on August 20th. So on that note, uh, there's so much more to dive into. And I, I know we'll come back to this again and again um, throughout TMK. Uh, but this has been episode three. Uh, again, I'm, I'm Jathan, joined with Ed and producer Jeremy. And uh, see ya.